Well, welcome to the first uh, sermon message in a series called Hope in the Dark, Real Faith for the Real World. And by real faith, I mean a faith that goes beyond a checklist of things that we all agree with. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow, except in Rochester. We have no idea what will happen <laughs> tomorrow, right? But um, it's more than just a factual agreement. And it's certainly more than just abstract concepts. Hope and dark are big ideas that are abstract. And the goal of this series, the goal of our time together, is to bring that down not only into the world, but into our world. To be able to have something that as we walk away each and every time, whether you're uh, in person, whether you're online, uh, whether you're watching uh, the podcast or listening to the podcast afterwards, uh, it gives you something that you can say, now I have hope for what I am currently living in right now today. We're talking about real faith for the real world, a kind of faith that would agree with the statement that the church planter and apostle Paul gave when he was writing one of his many letters to the church in Corinth, he said this, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's the kind of faith that I want to have. That's the kind of faith that I want to know in my life, in my work, in my ministry, in my marriage, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my world. I want that kind of faith that when it runs up against the real world, yeah, it gets shaken, but it stands firm. So how do we do that? Well, I think lots of people are hope experts these days. I think lots of people tell us this is how we can have hope, especially in a world where we have seen just a rise of, of anxiety, of, of stressors, of being unable to deal with the real world that they're in, and some of the challenges that they have, and some of them are very big. Lots of people have offered insight into how to have hope. Most say... Um, you know, interesting things, but one I thought that was very helpful was from the website Psychology Today. Psychology Today, when they post articles, they're peer-reviewed so that one person writes the article, and it's not just an opinion piece that's loaded to one side or the other. Someone comes in and actually reviews it and says, I, I also put my name behind this piece. Psychology Today suggested that hope is something that you need to create for yourself. And they offered these suggestions. You create hope for yourself by engaging or re-engaging in your world. Don't isolate. When the world gets tough, don't pull back from it, but re-engage into it. Get with others. Share some of those struggles. And don't just share some of those struggles. Help others. Do acts of service. Get your mind off of yourself, off of your problems, and give them, uh, help other people with their problems. It can kind of share that, you know, um, the idea that 
Uh, we're all in this together and providing hope as we share those burdens. Another thing they suggested about how to create hope is to laugh. Thank you. One person in the whole room knew what I, what I was aiming for there. Laughter. Finding things to laugh at often alleviate and provide, alleviate stress and provide hope. Practicing mindfulness. Some of the things they suggested were just exercise, stillness, calming your mind, prayer, anything that works for you to help you calm your body and to be mindful of how you are feeling and how you are thinking and not just what you're facing in the world. And they also recommended one that I thought was really interesting. Just don't give up, don't quit. I thought that was interesting because um, sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any other option. And yet they just say, keep going, keep trying. Um, so those were some of the suggestions that I thought weren't too bad. However, there's one problem with all of these suggestions. It's the foundational question. Our perception of reality is not always reality. Does that make sense? What we perceive as the challenges that we face in our world are not actually real. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, a recent YouGov poll asked people to guess the percentage of U.S. adults of particular subgroups in uh, U.S. adult population. And they showed that what people thought and what was actually real were sometimes widely different. Let me show you. Let me give you one example. Here, here's a question for you. What percentage of the U.S. adult population has a household income of $1 million or more? That was a question that was asked in this survey, and people would say, here's the percentage I think it is. It's either 0% to 100%. And what they discovered was this answer. Respondents to the survey said, oh, we think 20% of people, U.S. adults, have an income in their household of a million dollars or more. The reality is it's 1%. Not 20. It's 1. So, I thought we could see if we do better than they do. Let's see if we have a better understanding of what's real and what's happening in uh, some of the statistics that are happening among U.S. adults that we know of. Let's go to our next question. Let's see what we think. What percentage of the U.S. adult population have a college degree? What do you think? Do you think it's 10%? 90%? What do you think? Just shout out your answer. Type out your answer online if you'd like to do that. Or just think the answer to yourself in your mind. What do you think it is? 50%. 30%. 40%. Feel like I'm uh, about to, you know, have a gavel and bid. Do I hear more? Have an auction? Um, what's the answer? Respondent said 47 percent. The reality is 33. Someone said 30. It's very close. How about the next one? What percentage of the U.S. adult population is flowing on a plane? Eighty percent. 20%, 10%, see the answer. Respondent said 59%, reality is 68. 
What's our next question? What percentage of the U.S. adult population has a $25,000 or more household income? What do you think? What are our folks online saying? Slight delay. We'll see what kind of answers they give. You said 90%. 60%. We know it's at least 1% because it's a million dollars is greater than $25,000, and we covered that in the very first question. What are some of our, our folks online saying? Okay. Always a slight delay. No answers yet. What's the answer? Respondents guessed 62%, yet the reality is it's 82% have at least 25,000 annual income in their households. Here's one. What percentage of the U.S. adult population is left-handed? 25%. Okay. 50%. 20%. 30%. So we're somewhere between 20 and 30% is what I'm hearing everyone kind of agree with. Let's see what the answer is. Respondents said 34%, but reality is that it's 11% of people. What's our next question? What percentage of the U.S. adult population is Jewish? What's the answer? Respondents thought 30%, but in reality, it's 2%. This is my favorite. What percentage of the U.S. adult population has read a book in the last year? (laughs) 5%. 1%. 5? Respondents thought 50%. In reality, it was 77%. Do you know what we just demonstrated together? We overestimate our understanding of reality. We have an idealized picture. We have an assumption of what is around us, of some basic statistics that we assume are foundational then in the way that we work and live and react. And all of the things that we just tested are are pretty just factual pieces of information. They don't actually affect the way that we live, right? They don't change uh, what we do. They don't change how we behave. They don't change the way we view the world. But if we get the simple stuff misunderstood, what happens when it becomes the bigger things? We need perspective. We need an objective view that helps us lay a proper foundation for hope. And we find how to do that in the book of Psalms. 
And if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to the very first psalm in the book of Psalms, which is appropriately labeled Psalm 1. Good answer. We got that one right. 100% of respondents got it correct. Well done. Now, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, and while you do that, let me give you just a little bit of a background about what the book of Psalms is. It's a worship. It's, it's a worship manual. It's a hymn book for the people of Israel, and it has some high and holy exalted songs and poetry that they would use in public worship services in ancient Israel. But it also has some really raw and open and, and intimate details of things that some of Israel's leaders and kings, especially David, faced in his life and some of the struggles that he had in maintaining hope as the king of Israel. But it's interesting that this was the very first worship song that was put into the manual as number one. And this is what it tells us. This is what it says. That learning and applying the Bible is the way to produce a foundation for hope, a foundation for success. Take a look at the first two verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Let's just leave that verse up there for a second, Josh, if you can switch to the smaller window so that uh, our online participants um, can continue to follow along. This is weird poetry, isn't it? Because what this says is, blessed is a person who doesn't hang out with the wrong people. In turn, what we expect it to say is, blessed is someone who therefore hangs out with the right people. But it doesn't. It says, blessed is the person who doesn't walk with the wicked and sit with the mockers and so on and so on. But instead says, this is what they do instead. They meditate on God's law. And it seems like it's strange poetry. But in reality... It is talking about who we hang out with more. Because it says it's someone who wants to know God's voice. The interesting thing to me is that the psalmist is agreeing with what we just learned. And is proving what we just demonstrated together. That we don't have a really great skill set when it comes to understanding reality that we need help. The blessed person doesn't just not do evil and not just hang with evil people, but they need to learn what good is. Blessed people know that they're not to walk in step with the wicked. They don't stand in the way sinners take, don't sit in the company of mockers. It's interesting that those three things have a progressive nature to them. They move from the way we think, to the way we behave, and to the people that we belong with. There's just this progressive movement towards, I'm with these people, but I'm not like them, to I kind of enjoy what they're doing, to now I'm doing what they're doing. So they don't do that. 
Blessed people instead delight in the law of God. They meditate on it day and night. In other words, they want to spend more time with the one who is perfectly good than the one who is not. They want to know what God has said. They want to know what issues He's talking about, He's thinking about, what's on His heart and His mind. That's where the psalmist wants to be, and that's where the blessed person is. How does that work? What is the blessing that they receive? What is the blessing that someone who meditates on God's Word gains? We see it in verse 3. That person, that blessed person that meditates on God's instruction day and night is uh, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Knowing and applying God's instructions from His Word leads to true success because it works in any age, in any situation, any environment, any culture. Those who refuse to know and obey and know and apply God's Word run into a problem. They end up being destroyed. So the whole point of this morning is to encourage us to move from an understanding that we have a great concept of reality, that we know what's happening in our world and take a step back and say, actually, I need to know the one who understands the big picture. So let's talk about what it means to meditate. Meditation is not, you know, what we would picture from an Eastern mysticism or something where we sit down and we chant and things like that. It is trying to determine how something that was written so long ago makes sense now. How does that work? How do those principles, how do those concepts come into my life today? How do they work in our world? And am I applying them with all of my heart, all of my strength, all of my mind, and all of my soul? It's a regular engagement of, this is what God is saying, am I living that out? And not just assuming that we are, because as we've already learned, we have a, we have a concept that Well, apparently we don't really have some of the foundational things solid. We don't have a great perception of reality. We need someone who sees the big picture from the beginning of time to the end of time. And that's fun because what that means is that something isn't true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true, and we can't figure it out unless God tells us. 
In other words, God's truth exists in the world around us, not just in here, and He wants to help us make the connection. He wants to help us see the big picture. That means that you can spot God's truth happening in your daily lives every day. One of the things my family loves to do and hates to do with me is go to the movies. Because we practice this concept of how do we see the big idea, the big picture of what's happening in the movies. What's happening in the movie. So as we're walking out, we've just seen a great movie. And I will say, so what do you think the point was? How do all of the scenes of the movie fit together? And we'll talk about what, he, what was the topic, what question was the director asking, and how do you think they answered it? And then I will ask, so do you think that's a biblical concept or not? Is that something that you see that God would agree with? Is that an idea that He would also communicate? Just in this two and a half hours, did they communicate that idea well? My son hates it. At one point, he said, can't we just go to the movies and enjoy it and not have to think about it? <laughs> yes, when you don't go with me. <laughs> because this is, this is something that I've loved to do is begin to engage with where do I see God's truth being talked about in other mediums than in God's Word? It's happening in movies. It's happening in television. It's happening in podcasts. All of these things have a message, and they're trying to say, this is what's true. And we as Christians get a chance to interact with that and say, is that something that God agrees with or not? And that is incredibly helpful and incredibly formative. We lack perspective on the big things unless we intentionally take time to think about those things and ask for help. You know, I've often said that um, it's interesting that in the Bible we are called the children of God and that we never become the adults of God in His eyes. In a way, this learning, this meditating and being His children is like we're still little children. And little children often have a poor perspective of reality, right? A, a child will wake up in terror in the middle of the night only and call for their parents, and their parents will come running in only to explain that the monster that they saw is actually just a sweater on the chair, and they saw a strange light that kind of illuminated it in a strange way. But everything's okay. There's no monster in the chair. There's no monster under the bed, even though they may have heard some things and know some things. And we as people do that all the time. We make up monsters where there are none. And when we begin to focus our attention on knowing and applying and seeing God's truth in the world, we become to experience the kind of blessing we, because we experience the big picture, the bigger perspective that we would not have otherwise. I think one of the challenges that we face is that we have a selfish side to us that lives in the now, that lives in the moment, that lives carpe diem, seize the day, uh, make it yours, make it happen, and there's certainly some truth to that. 
But what we often do is we trade what's going to last in the future for immediate satisfaction. That's what our consumer culture has uh, helped us do, is that we want to have what we want right now, and we will sacrifice the future to get it. We want what preserves our lives. We want what keeps us happy. We want what relieves us from anxiety and pain. Even if by going through those things, enduring those things, sacrificing for God through those things, it will give us growth. I don't know of a person who doesn't struggle with personal change for their betterment because change is painful. And the kind of change that God wants to bring into our lives to make us pure, to make us sanctified, comes with sacrifice. And our selfish side wants to say, I don't want to give that up. I don't want to change that. So one of the things we do is we rationalize. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow, but today, you know, I'll, I'll take that shortcut. Today, I don't need to worry about what God has said here. I want to have this right now, and I'll worry about the consequences later. It really is a struggle when we think, does it really matter? The answer is absolutely. How much pain and suffering could have been avoided if we had have taken God's view on marriage? How much pain and suffering could we have avoided if people were to prioritize meditating on God's word, each individual in the family, not just you, but all of your family, how much pain would that have avoided? Imagine if we thought God's way about sexual intimacy. It would almost eradicate sexual disease in our world. And I grew up in an era where we didn't know what to do because of diseases like AIDS that especially went, ran wild and rampant in third world countries, continent of Africa back in the 80s. Do you think Russia would be at war with Ukraine if Vladimir Putin had said, I prioritize knowing and applying God's word? The answer is no. This matters. Because we don't have a foundation of what it means to truly sacrifice for good. And the little shortcuts that we take that we think are good enough aren't good enough. And the psalmist recognizes that. And the whole hymnal of the people of God in the Old Testament starts with, we don't know. We know what not to do, but we don't know what to do instead. And we need your help, Lord. And isn't it amazing that we have this in the first place? 
Isn't it amazing that we have a God who is interested in communicating with us, who doesn't just remain abstract and hidden and unknown and unknowable, but instead reveals himself by not only showing us how he thinks, but the way that he works in the world through multiple generations of people who were obedient, of people who were disobedient, and it's all preserved for us so that we can know the mind and heart of God in the things that he wants to help us see so that we can know the big picture. If you want to find hope in the dark, it starts with a foundational confession that says, I may not know what the best outcome is. God, would you help me? And I'm going to turn to your word to find that out. You have that foundational understanding. A person who says, I'm not convinced I have the best understanding of reality. But God does. And I want to see from his perspective. After all, his perspective was before the beginning of time, and it will be till after the end of time. I want that, and he wants to share that with us. When we start to say, I will make it my goal in life to meditate on God's instructions, to know and apply, and to question whether I know and apply God's word, you and I can find success. Now, why do we struggle? Because the, cha- the problem is the payoff isn't immediate, right? I know it's difficult. Choosing God's instruction is never easy. We have that built-in lack of perspective combined with a deep desire for self-preservation and self-gratification. But choosing God's perspective does come with a payoff. There's two. The one is transformation of character. Our characters are transformed To be like Jesus, who had the fruit of the Spirit in his life, who was patient with people, kind with people. It's a character development that you and I could not have in each and every situation, no matter what era we live in in the world, no matter what we are facing in in our world today, in our specific circumstances, our character can be transformed. And secondly, It's not just a character transformation now. It is a reward later. Where in eternity, God sees those who were faithful, who had real faith in their real world, and hungered and thirsted after righteousness. God rewards those people. God has a reward for them. He will reward you for faith. So as we begin our series, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Psalms, but not exclusively in the book of Psalms. We're going to talk about how to have real faith in the real world, and it starts with a foundation where I just want to ask you one simple question. Who or what do you listen to the most? Who or what do you listen to the most? Um, Problem is we have a lot of noise in our culture. We are one of the most over-communicated to cultures that have ever existed. 
And if we just want to find people who agree with what we think is right, we can easily find them. Um, it's helpful to be able to tune those people out. Um, my uh, whole family and I, we have these Apple AirPods. Um, we use them to connect with our phones. We can connect them to our laptops. We can actually connect them to our television. We can use them to phone people. They're, they're handy little devices. But one of the things I like is something that's actually quite standard on most, uh, you know, the next step up pair of headphones, and that is that they have noise canceling. But just holding a button, all the echo in the room is gone. All the noise of what's happening around us is gone. I can be sitting beside Krista on the couch, and I can't hear a word she says because of the noise-canceling headphones. I can say to Josh, hey, did you do your chores? Can't hear me because he's got his noise-canceling headphones in. Because when we do that, we want to hear only what we want to focus on. I think that's something that you and I need to do is decide who is it that we'll turn on the noise canceling for. And the God of the universe has sent you an entire message so that you can get to know him and also understand how the world and your world works. So who do you want to hear? How will I take time to meditate on God's Word? You can read your Bible, study your Bible, you can subscribe to a podcast. One of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm listening to the Bible in an audiobook format. No pages in front of me, I'm not following along, I'm just listening to someone read it to me. And it's been incredibly refreshing as I hear things that I would skip over as I just read it. But I have to slow down as someone else is speaking it to me. I find that so, so helpful right now just in this season of life. As you think about who you consider to be your most trusted source of information, would you allow God's instruction to you, His Word, to be your number one soundtrack that you turn on the noise canceling for so that you can focus on what he's said he has eternal perspective and the one who does this they'll be blessed you won't regret it let me pray for you father in this moment we ask your holy spirit to speak to us. Lord, we often have a, a naive understanding of reality. We don't understand the big picture, but you do. And the amazing thing is that you have given us your word so that you can help us to see the big picture. Would you help us to meditate on your word? To study it, to begin a daily Bible reading, to begin listening daily, to study it, to apply it.
to ask the hard questions. Do we know it? Are we applying it? And when others challenge us, if we are, to not be offended, but to be thankful. Because we want to get this right. We can't trust our own understanding of what we see around us. We need your help. We need your perspective. And you have gladly given it to us. So, Lord, would you help us to meditate on your word day and night to see how what you have taught us in your word is being lived out or is not being lived out in the world today, in our world today. Because as we do so, we will find success. We will find that our characters are transformed. We look forward to the hope of a reward in eternity. And we will be blessed. So Lord, help us not to trust what we feel is right. Help us to learn from you. What is right? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.